Welcome to this special edition Appropriate. We're going to be having our regular show tomorrow, but in light of the breaking news in the higher education world, we are lucky to be joined today by Dr. Carol Swain, former professor at Princeton and Vanderbilt and Nashville resident. So good morning, Dr. Swain. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I am doing just fine. So I really want to thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to us today. I know it's been a busy week for you just seeing all of the media appearances that are going on. Um, I'm guessing this is not how you thought two weeks before Christmas would be going for you at this point. My life changed Sunday evening and it's been a whirlwind, very exhausting. And I've lost track of how many interviews I've given. I would imagine uh, at the end of the day, it will be close to 30. Oh my gosh. Well, again, we really appreciate you talking to us. Um, were you familiar at all with uh, President Gay and her scholarship before this week? Well, during the time that I was at Princeton, towards the end of my tenure there, I heard about this brilliant young woman. And she was, uh, you know, the most brilliant thing that political science had ever discovered. I don't know that I met her or that she reached out to me. So I did not follow her career closely. I knew she did quantitative methods and my research is more qualitative. And at that time, political scientists were very excited about quantitative methods. So can you tell us a little bit about your research um, while you were at Princeton and Vanderbilt? And we'll start there because we know that clearly she has heard of you. So. Well, let's start uh, with my uh, research uh, at uh, Princeton. Uh, my dissertation, which I got a National Science Foundation grant of $11,000, which was a lot of money back in the late 1980s, uh, I wrote a book uh, titled Black Faces, Black Interests, The Representation of African-Americans in Congress that uh, that was um, published by Harvard University Press. In fact, I had a, a contract on it when Princeton hired me, and that book won three national prizes, was cited by the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was considered pathbreaking and the seminal work in that area. And the book was about the trade-offs between descriptive representation, having people who look like you, and substantive representation having people in office who support your policy views. And I argued that uh, political party was more important than the race of the representative. I criticized uh, the, the drawing of majority black districts because at the time, the this was what blacks were pushing for. I was one of the ones that pointed out that it would help elect more Republicans and that Whites would support black candidates and blacks could support um, uh, whites and that your best representative might not be a member of your race. So that work on representation, minority representation in Congress was considered pathbreaking, published in 93, updated in 95 and republished in 2006. That's the work that she lifted a couple of passages from. I would argue that the passages that she lifted were not that significant, but that what was far more damaging to me career-wise was that she followed in my footsteps as far as pursuing research on minority representation and congressional districting and 
and so her whole career was built around ideas that came from Black faces of Black interests, which, which was considered the path-breaking book, but she doesn't really acknowledge my work. There's usually one citation in the bibliography that harms someone like me because in academia, your reputation depends on how many citations you have. And if there's a person out there that's working in the same area and they're not acknowledging your contribution to what they're pursuing, that's harmful. I did not know that was the case until Monday when I started looking at her publications. And I think at this point, we I mean, news keeps breaking. I've been preparing my interview uh, with you for most of the week after uh, we set it up. And I've had to cross out this many more. I mean, I think we're up to five now that have shown instances of plagiarism. So, I mean, is five this normal? In- and, no, five articles, and I believe 27 scholars in, impacted. That's the last I saw or heard. I mean, ha- have you ever seen anything like this in your career before, even from maybe a more mid-level professor, um, you know, teaching at a regional college? I mean, is this, is this something that happens in academia normally? I can't recall uh, a case where someone advanced to this level without it being caught. And part of my beef uh, is not just with uh, Claudine Gay, but also with her advisors, her reviewers, because I believe that in some of her articles, she should have engaged my work in the sense that since she was building on research in that area, she should have uh, acknowledged it just to refute it or to affirm it. And in that particular case, she would have been refuting it because we did not agree. Uh, But she didn't do that. Instead, there's one citation in her bibliography. I would say that her work was so uh, derivative of mine, you know, she should have had scores of uh, citations and references to my work. That, to me, was harmful in ways that it may not have been harmful to other scholars because me as a conservative, as I grew more conservative, I became more marginalized in political science. And I would say it was like cancel culture before we even knew such a thing existed. Yeah, And that actually leads me to my next question. We had a wonderful conversation last year when I did a profile on you after you wrote Black Eye for America. Um, what made you leave academia? Because I'm I'm currently still in academia and I hear from professors that are very good professors all the time who are just getting inzo- exhausted with what you know they call the the academic industry now. So what was it that sort of made you decide um, I'm ready to move on from this after dedicating my life to it? Well, I was in the center of a controversy involving an opinion piece that I published in uh, January 2015. I was criticizing Islam, and it created a a firestorm. I was um, protested. There was a big rally denouncing me, my bigotry and my hatred. And then, I'm sorry. (laughs) So there was a rally denouncing me, and I also had been at the center of a battle in which Christian groups were singled out on my campus and they eventually lost that student recognition, all except the ones that went along with the university. But the majority of Christian groups on campus at that time lost their student recognition. I had been the advisor of some of those groups. 
But after the uh, publication of the Islam article and the reaction to that, I became very unhappy in academia. But the turning point was summer of 2016, after the five police officers in Dallas were slain. After, you know, this took place around the time of a Black Lives Matter rally, maybe even the next day. I was on CNN debating a woman named Reba Martin. And during that interview, I said that Black Lives Matter was a Marxist group, that they were very destructive. And I urged people to go to their website. After, And so that was the turning point because then the university issued a statement that was more opposition to me. And I eventually picked up the phone. I called the dean. I said, this is not working. And I initiated the process for an early retirement. Do you think that the university at this point as an institution is salvageable? And if it is, what steps are we going to have to take? I believe good can come out of the controversy at Harvard. Uh, Claudine Gay definitely needs to go. And I would normally call her Dr. Gay, but it's been revealed that she pleasurized not just her dissertation, but also uh, her published works you know, at least five of her published works that she would have presented for tenure. And so it seems like she was fraudulent from the very beginning. And I don't see how Harvard can continue to stand behind her. Getting rid of her will be a first step in Harvard University trying to salvage its reputation. But more has to be done for higher education in general. And they can start by opening up uh, the university space for divergent ideas. Now, if you go to university campuses, there may be one or two uh, token conservatives in the closet, but for the most part, you will not have robust conversations in the classroom or in any of the forms because universities and colleges have allowed themselves to become indoctrination centers. So I believe we can reclaim the universities they do have to make changes because more and more young people are not considering a college degree as a worthwhile investment, and their parents are feeling the same way. There's some grandparents and uh, who have saved up money for their grandchildren's education, parents as well, and they're giving these young people a choice. You can take the money and invest it in a business, or you can go to college, and that's because they don't see the value added from a college degree. And until universities uh, transform themselves, it is not worth the money. So let's kind of move to a hypothetical where the university figures itself out. Um, you know, we can hope and pray for that. What do you see as the enduring value of a college degree? You know, being somebody that has had a very illustrious career at Vanderbilt and Princeton and um, a lot of awards and produced some you know, really relevant and groundbreaking scholarship. What can a young person today, if they find a college, that will actually educate them? What will they glean from that education? Well, first of all, there are some professions like the medical profession, the legal profession, uh, uh, many professions where you have to have a college degree. And so young people will always want to go to college if they dream of becoming certain types of uh, professionals. And so the value of the education, you know, is there, should be there, what is missing is that the universities are not um, 
teaching or exposing young people to the ideas that would help them become critical thinkers. If they're going to be leaders, if they're going to be successful in their professions, they need to be critical thinkers. And you can't be a critical thinker in an environment that punishes thought. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your new project. Uh, you've been using this phrase as you've been talking about Harvard's President Gay, the adversity of diversity. And I know that that is your current book project that you're just beginning to release now. So could you tell us a little no, no, it's bit about been that? Out for a while. It, it was published. Uh, it's behind me here. It was published uh, in August and Fort Tooth and Nail by Amazon, the largest bookseller in the world. It took them eight days to put it up. Then they made a decision that it could not be reviewed. And I had to appeal that. And I won the appeal. And then they told people that it would be three months before they could get it. And then Twitter uh, at that time suppressed it. It's as if the whole DEI um, regime saw the threat and they came together to suppress the book. And unlike Black Faces, Black Interest, that just immediately was a bestseller, this book has struggled. And so I'm hoping that the good that will come out of the Claudine Gay controversy is that more people will learn uh, about the connection between critical race theory, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, and affirmative action. And DEI is affirmative action on steroids. It violates a U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, as well as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its extensions. And it creates chaos. It does not um, uh, bring anything useful into the workplace or into the educational environment. It's led to a dramatic lowering of standards. And it's not necessary for us to have diversity. If we want diversity in institutions, all we have to do is to follow the original intent of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the measures that were put in place in the wake of that. So do you think last summer's Supreme Court decision about affirmative action is going to have any impact or provide any channels? I know when in your previous book, um, Black Eye, you talk about how lawsuits ridicule, these are really good strategies. Do you think that people hoping to oppose DEI are going to have an extra tool in their their belt because of the Supreme Court decision? Or do you think it's not really going to matter that much? Yes. I mean, that's what this book is about. And I'm going to read my subtitle because I've changed it uh, twice and I forget The subtitle is How the Supreme Court's Decision to Remove Race from College Admissions Criteria Would Doom Diversity Programs. And the argument is that diversity programs violate the Constitution uh, and uh, civil rights laws in the same way as race-based affirmative action. And as a consequence, the companies, the organizations, the places that have DEI programs, they are opening themselves up to lawsuits. And I'm going to briefly tell you what some of the titles of the chapters are. This is a short book, just like Black Eye for America. It was meant to be gotten through. First chapter is uh, Rest in Peace, Affirmative Action, Up Next, DEI. And then second chapter, Carol's Educational Journey in in an Affirmative Action World, Diversity Training, A Corporate Conundrum, A Not So Inconvenient Death, The Martyrdom, of George Floyd. And we talk about how 
for the left. I mean, George Floyd is what allowed them to create this monster that we call DEI. It was around before, but after George Floyd's death, it went to levels that no one imagined, levels of discrimination against whites, Christians, Asians, any group that wasn't considered favorite. And then I talk about uh, my business, Unity Training Solutions, and how there's a better way that we need to go back to e pluribus unum out of many one and the golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated, and the traditional literature on workplace uh, harmony and organizations and take the race and take the bias and take the group discrimination out of the calculus. And I think I may know the answer to this question, but there has been some discussion on X and Twitter and in the media about, you know, how to, how to fix DEI. Um, so in, in your opinion, and I know that you do have this consulting um, business where you are promoting solutions to some of these problems. Um, some people have said, we don't really need to dismantle it. We just need to carve out an exception for Jews as not white people. Um, so you, you advocate for an other dismantling. The, the, the DEI industry uh, is is bankrupt, morally bankrupt. We don't need it. It needs to be totally uh, dismantled because it violates the Constitution in most cases and the uh, civil rights laws. And the only reason that uh, University of Michigan or other universities are talking about adding anti-Semitism is that they're fighting for survival. And anything they would put in place to fight anti-Semitism would be problematic. We don't need these DEI programs. We just need to follow the laws of the land. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a little bit about plagiarism as a concept. Right. Um, you know, I had to turn in a couple of plagiarism cases pretty recently. I've noticed there has been sort of an uptick among students of using AI or, you know, just copying each other's papers. Um, if Claudine Gay had been a student of yours and you found that she did this, what would have happened to her? She probably would have gotten uh, an F in the class. Uh, and if it was a senior thesis, it's possible that the student would be expelled. If that was uh, uh, something that they did repeatedly. But that would have been uh, severe consequences. And it wouldn't be uh, Harvard's remedy where first they try to redefine plagiarism. And second, they say she can go back in and make corrections. I've never heard of getting a do-over. Uh, usually when you're caught wrongdoing, uh, caught in wrongdoing, you're held accountable for your actions. And I believe it sends the wrong signal, not just to uh, students in colleges, but also to those in middle school as well as high school, because surely they will learn that the president of Harvard University plagiarized her way to the top. And they may think that plagiarism isn't that serious. And when it comes to AI writing papers and group chat, I actually don't know a lot about it. I don't know how professors are catching there to, or can they catch it? Is there a way to, um, to, to, to give assignments that students can't run through AI? So it's a whole new territory. But when it comes to uh, plagiarism, the software where has been around for a few years where you can run papers through that you suspect. And that's what's been so galling. I mean, the the most jaw-dropping thing to me was that Monday morning, whenever 
this was discovered and Harvard decided, oh, well, this is really what our plagiarism statement says. And this is something that's also come up a lot very recently. Um, we had Chadwick Moore on, on the show about a month ago and who wrote the biography of Tucker Carlson. And Brian Stelter uh, from CNN and the New York Times right. essentially plagiarized his book in Vanity Fair and has faced no repercussions. Like the story has gained no traction. And it's it's even, you know, to the level, even worse. I mean, he acts like he interviews people in that book, but it seems like there are certain members of this elite class that just get off scot-free. And this can even go back to Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, who, you know, still has they've her chair on me. They've always been able to do that. Yeah, they've not, there's always been a different standard for progressives and for the left. Uh, when I was a Democrat and I was a member of the progressive community, I was never in good standing with them, but I guess I could have gotten away with a lot. As a conservative, you can get away with nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. So my, my last question for you, because I know that you are uh, busy and have a lot more media appearances on your plate. Do you think we're going to see um, any criminal activity once we sort of peel back some of these DEUI layers? I know Bill Ackman recently has been investigating MIT and a lot of money changing hands. So do you see any evidence at this point that there might be something that's not just a, a civil issue, but a criminal issue coming forward? I can tell you that I've already had lawyers contacting me asking me if they can represent me in a lawsuit against Claudine Gay. And I'm not uh, inclined to jump at that. But I wonder if some of the other people who were plagiarized will file lawsuits against Harvard and against her. And I think that um, people will be held accountable and that organizations will be more cautious because there are some corporations that have already settled racial discrimination cases. And we know that Starbucks had to pay out $25 million to a white woman who had um, been falsely uh, accused and discharged. And so corporations had to be very careful. And it used to be uh, after affirmative action and after the civil rights laws, the focus was on compliance, compliance with the law. Uh, organizations want to stay out of trouble. Now what they're doing is getting them in trouble. And I hope they'll begin to realize that. So do you think that students who've been kicked out of Harvard for less than Claudine Gay should be suing? Because I know there's there are attempts by Chris Rufo and some other individuals to try to get a class action together. Well, I mean, I think that they should. I think that Harvard needs to be held accountable. But in the meantime, I think Harvard's brand has been going down the toilet for a long time. And that um, its day of reckoning, uh, you know, maybe this is its day of reckoning, but it has already damaged its brand. And they have decided that keeping this DEI president, and when I think about her, I get really angry because she went to the most elite boarding school uh, in America, uh, Phillips Exeter, and she, then she had her Harvard undergraduate uh, education. She won a prize for her senior thesis. She won a prize for her dissertation. And then the work that she borrowed from other people was mediocre at best. She was able to get tenure on the basis of that work and to rise to the level of being president of Harvard. Some of it has to do with pedigree. Uh, the elites produced her. They created her. And they can't um, really hold her accountable without holding holding themselves accountable. And I believe that's why they're reluctant. 
Absolutely. Well, Dr. Swain, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure talking to you and hearing about some of this firsthand after looking at it from afar. Um, again, can you repeat the title of your book and tell us where we can get it? Okay. This is the book, uh, The Adversity of Diversity. The Adversity of Diversity, How the Supreme Court's Decision to Remove Race from College Admissions Programs Will Doom Diversity uh, Programs. And it can be ordered uh, anywhere books are sold, uh, certainly from Amazon. And there is a Christian bookstore in Nashville that if you go to my website and you click and order books from there, they can uh, get you personalized and signed books. So you can order from Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere books are sold. But if you want them personalized and signed, you will go to Logos Books Nashville. Great. Well, I guess that would make a wonderful holiday gift and a very topical one, too. So, as always, it was a pleasure. Um, you have a very Merry Christmas, Dr. Swain, and I'm sure that uh, we'll right. be hearing from you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.